we've got to change the culture of these organizations. The humanitarian aid sector was built on a kind of a, a male macho sweep in with a lot of resources into absolute chaotic situations. And that differentiation in a, the power dynamics have allowed this to happen. This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. In today's programme... According to UNICEF, starvation and disease kill one Yemeni child every 10 minutes. And children there in need, I have absolutely no problem with it, but this is not where the money should be going and how it should be going. Eight convoys in Syria are said to be on their way to deliver supplies to people trapped in besieged areas. The accusations against Oxfam staff first emerged in the Times newspaper on Friday. The report said the NGO was aware of the complaints. humanitarian aid agencies, for some modern-day saints, for others bureaucratic, money-wasting, maybe even doing more harm than good. So how do we know they're actually delivering on their promises? And what do the communities they say they're helping think of them? Today we're joined by Tanya Wood, Executive Director of the aid agency monitoring body, the Core Humanitarian Standards Alliance, Charles Antoine Hoffman, Senior Advisor on Accountability and Community Engagement with UNICEF, and our regular analyst, Daniel Warner. To get started, I asked Tanya what the CHS Alliance actually does. CHS Alliance was set up in 2015, and it came out of um, a long history of the aid sector looking at how to improve its accountability to the people that it serves. And it has a a membership of 150 organizations, mostly organizations who deliver humanitarian assistance and very much sort of humanitarian accountability is its focus. And the way we do it is through something called the Core Humanitarian Standard, which was a new standard that was launched at the end of 2014. And it was made as a set of nine commitments that the humanitarian sector was making to the people that it serves. And that's a whole range of things from having the delivery done by well-trained staff to being learning organizations, but also I think sort of fundamentally about sort of do no harm. So many things around the prevention of sexual exploitation, abuse and, and harassment. So nine commitments and these organizations that are part of our membership and the wider sector have made to um, affected people in how they behave and how they deliver aid. Let's come to you then, Charles. Antoine Hoffman of UNICEF, because UNICEF is a prominent signatory. You've decided you want to be monitored. Why did why did UNICEF decide it was important to do that? I, I would start by saying we, we've actually signed up to the core humanitarian standard. We recently conducted a, a, an independent benchmarking against the, the core humanitarian standards with the, the results coming up at the end of last year. And we also included strong recognition of the importance of, of those commitments in, in the new revised core commitments for children in humanitarian action, which is a very key document for us in the sense that this really lays down 
how we expect to work in, in the humanitarian context when it comes to working on supporting children. But this is not just about UNICEF. That's a document that is for the broader range of responses, including governments and civil society organizations. And we again, we, we have uh, very clear commitments around the core humanitarian standards expressed there. Okay, Danny, what about you? Did you did you even know there was such a thing as, as the CHS Alliance? What do you think? No, I didn't. My first reaction was it sounded a little bit like a business model that someone would learn in business school that's now been translated to the humanitarian community. But I was most interested in Tanya's statement about the people it serves. What about the donors? I mean, what is the problem between the donors and the actual accountability of the recipients? Somehow, it does seem to me that there is an accountability to the people giving the money. Tanya, what do you think? Because in fact, you have actually done now the first ever long-term study of how aid agencies are living up to those core standards. What are the findings? So um, like Charles said, we ask organisations to put themselves through this, what we call a verification process. So rather than just having a a standard that we say is a a nice to have, we actually ask organisations to measure and importantly improve whether they're going to be able to meet those commitments and credit to UNICEF for putting themselves through that process because it's a fairly rigorous process to do so. We now have just over 100, 109 organizations who've assessed themselves, verified themselves against this standard over five years, which starts to give us this sample size that's big enough to be able to see trends in in the sector. And we've just analyzed those with the release of what we call the Humanitarian Accountability Report this week. The main findings of it, um, and as I say, sort of smallish sample size, but one where we start to see some trends, is the biggest takeaway is in the commitments. The commitment that is doing the best, commitment six, is around our coordination mechanisms, the way the sector has been able to coordinate and complement itself. The uh, reverse of that is the commitment that we're not doing as well on, the weakest one, and that is around how complaints are being handled and addressed and this uh, we hope is giving the sector a bit of a reflection on where it's invested its funding going back to Danny's point around kind of accountability to the donors we know the humanitarian sector has had to coordinate rightfully so amongst itself and a lot of investment has gone into that but maybe where we're not doing as well is actually that piece around how we're actually listening, responding to, making sure it's safe, and the people that we're actually working with know how to raise their concerns or complaints when when things go wrong. So, Charles, I think what Tanya's saying there is that aid agencies are, by and large, delivering humanitarian aid quite efficiently, but are they listening to the people they're delivering to? Is there enough communication coming back to say, actually, this is really what we needed and um, actually this didn't go so well? That's exactly the the challenge we face. I mean, we're doing pretty well on coordination and complementarity and and, uh, pretty badly, I would say, in terms of our commitment around welcoming and addressing complaints, uh, which obviously um, is problematic and and, uh, challenging, and and we we should do everything we can to, to address this. The first things we've done once we got the results was to 
put together a management response, which was endorsed by our directors in the, in the regions on HQ. One key things that came up in, in uh, this uh, analysis was that it's not that we don't do it. It's more that it's not systematic enough. There's progress every year over the last couple of years. We've included in our ongoing assessment of, of where we are in, in, in different countries. We can see some progress. Uh, 26% of countries in 2018 reported that they have at scale feedback mechanisms. And uh, the, the, the following year, 2019, we, we had 38 countries. So it's clearly not enough, but it's going in the right direction. I think that there's a, a slight risk of focusing only on those mechanisms and not looking at the entire package when it comes to being accountable uh, to affected people and communities and putting them at the center. Let's not forget that they need to receive the right information, not just on the services we provide, but also on what they should expect in terms of behaviors from aid providers. Let's not forget that they should be part and parcel of the response and participate uh, in, in the way we design the programs. So, so it, again, it's, it's a package where we need to be a lot uh, better, I would say. There have been issues around aid agencies and complaints. And of course, the media has stressed particularly the the sexual exploitation. Do you think that's an an issue, Danny? Obviously, it's an issue in terms of accountability and work absolutely needs to be done there. But it's also one that, that it's the one that always gets into the headlines for aid agencies. Well, I mean, this is supposed to be an image of these perfect Puritans who were coming in. Uh, whereas, in fact, in the DRC, I think you still have over 11,000 soldiers who come from all different kinds of countries. And why do you assume that every one of them is going to act perfectly well when they're out there? So there is an image of the aid worker being the perfect citizen. But I also think there's a question of the aid agencies between the donor and the recipients working also with the local government. There are certain questions of corruption that have turned up, uh, not just in terms of abuse, but also in terms of money. Uh, And these are questions that everyone has out in the field, but the aid agencies, I think, are held to a much higher level. Uh, Is there any way to put that back into a certain kind of perspective? I think it's difficult because the media is going to jump on this. They're looking for those kinds of scandals. Charles, you know, if we look, say, at the the scandals that surrounded, first of all, emerged from Oxfam in Haiti, when you hear something like that, do you all worry and think, oh, no, this could really affect how we work, this could affect our funding? I think that's definitely a worry for any organization, I'm I'm sure. But, you know, first of all, that's a concern for the way we work. And and, uh, it's such an unacceptable breach of our principles and ethics, etc. That, uh, first of all, I would say it's it's a concern for for us in terms of why is it happening and and why can't we stop this from happening? I mean, we have a clear zero tolerance. We we have put a lot of efforts in place from uh, recruitment to training to providing services to, to victims. Uh, providing uh, channels for, for them to complain, etc. But it's clearly not enough. So I think the first direction is we need to, I'm talking in general terms, keep our efforts as much as we can and, and keep scaling them up. But we've done already a lot. And then when it comes to donors, of course, there are concerns there. But I wouldn't say we should be driven by, by that. Uh, but it's, it's obviously an important element in the equation. Tanya, it is a concern for aid agencies, this kind of story. Do you think they are equipped to deal with it, not just the fact that the media headlines, but 
the fact that this kind of problem does exist? I think they have to do a lot more. They have to do far more to be able to handle this better. And I think it doesn't, obviously, from a standard setting body like ourselves, we ask organisations to really rigorously look at their policies and practice they have in place to make sure that this is seen as unacceptable. The issue is, is we've got to change the culture of these organisations. The humanitarian aid sector was built on a kind of a, a male macho sweep in with a lot of resources into absolute chaotic situations. And that differentiation in a, the power dynamics have allowed this to happen. That's a much broader way of being able to kind of change our sector in how we how we operate, how we view ourselves. That's going to take a longer time. In the meantime, organisations have to check that they're showing there are a culture where it's not acceptable. Danny, what do you think about about Charles's and, and Tanya's point here that this this kind of um, story? I mean, it must affect donors. Well, sure, but I, I hate to say people are people. Uh, but what I'm saying, I, and I said before, and I repeat, I think the aid agencies are held in under much higher level than other organizations. The World Bank has an acceptable corruption level in different countries. And it does seem to me, if you look at the number of people working for aid agencies in the field, percentage-wise, these things get blown enormously out of proportion. And also they're working in countries where the host government is not always the easiest to work with. So there are levels of corruption and pressures on them, uh, but they are held to a higher standard and that's something they have to accept. That's not going to change. Well, let's hear from one government which is holding one particular aid agency to possibly extremely difficult standards. Today I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. With the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have deep concerns whether America's generosity has been put to the best use possible. The World Health Organization is, of course, the aid agency in the spotlight right now because of the pandemic. Tanya, this isn't necessarily about accountability, or is it? What do you think? When, when we have the US government having a go at the World Health Organization... I think that's politics. That's not about accountability. I think the donors have obviously, the donors do have an incredible, we can't face it, have a massive amount of power and influence, particularly when they're not only donors to the UN, but are the member states of the UN. They can hold them to an account in an incredible way, but let's hold them to account on on the right things and in the right right processes. Um, they're going back to about PSC, uh, sexual exploitation and abuse. A lot of donors are having the debate about whether you withdraw funding for organizations and they have had these scandals in place but that's not necessarily going to help us make the progress we need to see on that and that's a debate but also trying to kind of separate out the, the politics from the accountability. What about you Charles does that uh, worry a big agency like UNICEF you see what's been happening at the World Health Organization that because of 
one particular very significant donor that the whole the whole future of, a, of an agency could be questionable. I think we should be cautious not to extrapolate for, from a very you know particular situation, which, as Tanya said, is is largely to do with politics. I would be cautious not to to draw conclusions from that. The pressure is there, but let's also look at the more positive aspects. We we do have very constructive engagements with donors as well, and they've been very useful in, in encouraging us and supporting us to some extent, probably not enough, but to be a lot more rigorous and, and uh, efficient in terms of putting people at the center of our work. So, so there, there's also a positive story to tell in terms of the there are lots of different dynamics from the you know very political aspects and, and then some other more engagement uh, aspects, which, which have been actually quite uh, important and useful. Danny, how do you think, though, the average taxpayer looks at it when you have a leader being so openly critical of a big agency and then you have headlines which suggest that the aid agencies aren't doing what they should or perhaps abusing their power? Do you think the average taxpayer in, a, in an industrialised country can distinguish between politics and, and genuine accountability? I think the average taxpayer has become very utilitarian in a moment of economic difficulty. What's in this for me? And one of the changes in language now for aid agencies, now you have to measure impact. You have to have matrices and numbers. And the question for many aid agencies, where they're just trying to feed people who are in a dangerous, difficult situation, is how are you going to measure the impact of what you're doing. That's what the taxpayer is being told. That's what's important. And I think that's very difficult in certain situations to measure. It's true that there's also growing pressure to demonstrate results and impact. And nobody can be against that for very obvious reasons. That's very good because that's actually pushing aid organization to to show value for money. And and, uh, I think we should also be a little bit cautious in some ways because, you know, sometimes there's a risk to, to favor highly visible results and and things which can be measured more easily without necessarily putting sufficient attention to those sort of surrounding aspects, which are equally important, but maybe less uh, easy to measure. There's sometimes a tendency to count results, you know, for instance, in terms of the number of latrines you build or the number of vaccines you provide, etc. But if you if you do that in a way which is not appropriate, if you put latrines in a place which are not safe, if you uh, provide vaccines to people who actually don't accept the idea of uh, using a particular vaccine, we've seen that in Ebola. All the efforts around setting up uh, feedback mechanisms were very important and all the, the work around engaging with communities because there, there were huge amount, amount of distrust. In- That's one of the things though, if you're faced with having to measure outcomes, you obviously have to have a strict oversight, control of what your operation is actually doing. That costs money, doesn't it? And But it's not money that's spent on concrete aid. And then we get back to this question of, of spending money on administration or bureaucracy is what the donors call it. They don't like that. Tanya, I can see you, you've got your hand up. Well, I would just say I think this is a, a really interesting point, Imogen. I think, you know, in terms of as the aid sector, we're very used to being able to measure outputs and report back to the donors. So that's, that's the funding model and the business model of a lot of aid is as reporting back to the donors that support us. If I can bring this back to the, the sort of CHS and these 
additional or, or fundamental requirements that we're asking organizations to measure themselves. I think there's a really interesting um, analogy that you would make with if you think of hospitals or you think of schools, anywhere that you put your people when they're in a level of vulnerability, either small children or in hospitals, there's no way you wouldn't expect them to be able to meet certain standards of operation. And yet somehow the aid sector has been able to continue to, to operate without this sort of um, high level of, of standards being required and assessed of them when they're working with some of the most vulnerable people in a, in a very um, chaotic situation. So I think the donors are realizing that there is a level of, doesn't have to be hugely bureaucratic, but a level of requirement that you you have to have in place to be able to work with, with vulnerable people. Well, we've talked a bit about the, the challenges and the criticism. We have actually had some good news. In fact, the very day that we are recording this programme, here it is. The need for international solidarity and multilateral cooperation is more conspicuous than ever. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2020 to the World Food Programme for its efforts to combat hunger, for its contribution to bettering conditions for peace in conflict-affected areas. World Food Programme has been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Interesting, it's the Nobel Peace Prize, and interesting what the Nobel Committee said. They said that this is contributing to ending conflicts or preventing conflicts. Um, When you think about it logically, of course, that's true. Also said it was an important sign of the need for multilateralism. Danny, let's ask you first, what's your reaction to that award? Well, I think it's wonderful uh, that the prize has been awarded to a multilateral organization, multinational organization, part of the UN system, which is uh, something against perhaps the current American administration. I also think it's a recognition that people who have food and are not starving are not going to go to war over food. They may go to war for something else, but the level of violence when people are starving has got to be extremely high. So I think there's a recognition of a relationship between economics, food, and peace, which I think is a very helpful thing. Charles, UNICEF works closely with the World Food Programme in in many countries, I believe. You must be very pleased that it got this recognition. No, absolutely very pleased. It's always a nice uh, thing to hear when peer organizations and indeed colleagues, we work very closely with them in in, uh, most, if not all, countries where we work. So so it's definitely something we we are delighted about because I think in the current climate, it's also a good thing to to recognize the uh, important work that, uh, you know, United Nations are doing across the world. Tanya, what about you? I mean, you in the CHS Alliance, I mean, you have links not just with some of these bigger organizations, but you have very small organizations, just very local ones, doing unrecognized work, but valuable work all over the world. 
Would you have preferred a smaller organisation to be recognised or, or do you think this is a good move? I think it's a, a fantastic move, partly because WFP does work with so many national partners and I think the credibility of their work has to be given to the many implementing partners that it works for, those small national organisations who are really at the delivery end and WFP works with with many of them. So as long as this sort of recognition can go for both of the large multilateral agency, which I do think is a, a fantastic endorsement of the multilateral approach, but also for the many implementing uh, partners it works with um, every day throughout, throughout the world. And I would also say I do see, and I'm very pleased it was recognized this link with humanitarian assistance also being a contributor to, to the peace endeavor. Okay, well, we're almost at the end of this programme. I wanted to look to the future with all three of you before before we finish up, but to begin by looking a little bit to the past, because I've been reporting on aid operations in many parts of the world for many, many years. And one of the things I have actually seen change is less of this white males coming in saying, we know what you need. Cowboys, in fact, a very senior aid official who recognised it in himself once called them do-gooding cowboys, that this has actually changed and that there is more of a community-centred, affected community-centred approach. And that, I think, has actually improved over the last 20, 25 years. What I want to do is based on that and the fact that we have a much more proactive oversight of what humanitarian organisations do, what would be the key things to go even further to make aid more effective, more accountable, in fact, more successful in contributing to the, the well-being of humanity and to peace? Danny, I think I'll start with you. Well, I think that more and more pressure should be put on the host countries to make sure that the aid agencies can work in a climate where there's no political pressure on them, that either they're undermining the local government or they're working outside of that. And I think more attention should be spent to the host country political situation, because if that doesn't work, the aid agencies are in a great deal of difficulty. Charles? I think the future can potentially be quite bright. I would say, if I had to say, you know, one thing in terms of looking forward, I will go for the half full rather than half empty glass on, on this one. On the positive note, I think that there's already quite a lot of progress. If I go back a large number of years when I started in, the, in this sector, you know, you wouldn't even think of asking people what they need, what they think, what's the perception of our work, how can we do better? I would say we're doing a lot better now in terms of asking people how can we improve our work etc. So there's been a lot of progress. We are not there yet, but I would be quite positive in terms of how far we, we're going. I would say the flip side of that is while we've improved in terms of quality and accountability in, in developing standards, etc., I think the sector has also become a lot more bureaucratic. You know, we, we end up spending a lot of time writing reports and, and doing things which sometimes prevent us from spending good quality time with, with uh, people and communities. So, so I think that that's maybe something we, we should um, keep in mind and go back to, to some of the basics in terms of valuing as much, you know, sitting down with communities or having a drinking tea with them versus uh, spending time writing reports. Okay, very interesting. Less reports, writing, more tea drinking. Uh, last word goes to you, Tanya. Thank you. We asked our, uh, when we launched the humanitarian accountability report, we asked members this and uh, 
there was three key messages. I think the humanitarian sector doesn't operate in a vacuum, obviously. The sort of scandals that came out of the aid sector were really driven by the Me Too movement, which was women taking their own power to say this isn't right anymore. And that led into the sort of people in the aid sector saying this wasn't right in our sector. So I think where we came out with was we need a more feminist approach to challenge that sort of male macho culture to to the aid sector we're seeing that we're also rightfully so being held to account with a movement around black lives matter and structural racism in the sector as well and i think we'll continue to be challenged on that so i think as you said at imogen this sort of male macho culture which was part of the humanitarian sector is being challenged and it is leading to more recognition of gender diversity and inclusion which is hopefully going to challenge some of these power imbalances that there have been well thank you all very much very interesting discussion one that could go on and on for some time and will go on needs to go on in fact today though we have to finish it there thanks to my guests tanya wood of chs alliance charles antoine hoffman of unicef and as ever danny warner our analyst and sometimes devil's advocate that brings us to the end of this edition of inside geneva thank you all for listening And next time on Inside Geneva, we'll have a special episode recorded live from Geneva's Graduate Institute. We'll be talking to experts in international affairs, historians and the younger generation about the future of the United Nations and whether it can survive the push against multilateralism. You can register for the event and watch the live stream on October 28th by visiting swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash inside geneva and you'll find the episode in your podcast feed on november 3rd in the meantime stay safe and thanks again for listening Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Mm -hmm.